Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today has been a marketing professional and spent several years in specialty retail. And today he's the senior brand manager at Perch. And some of you may know uh, Perch is one of the large Amazon aggregators. And uh, he's a big sports fan when he's not working. He supports all the bad New York sports teams. <laughs> even though he lives in uh, Boston. So uh, I'm, I'm sure he's, he's walking around with a shield <laughs> when, it's, when the New Yorkers are doing well. So with that, everybody, meet my guest, uh, Matt Rosenthal. Uh, welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you, Nick. Happy to be here. Uh, and uh, as we record this show, it's January 3rd, so Happy New Year and Happy New Year to everybody. Same to you, Nick. So um, we, we start a new year today, and uh, of course, everybody is off to the races, but we start the year with, you know, not necessarily the best conditions with high interest rates for borrowing, uh, which is key for inventory financing, uh, and costs are rising with inflation. So um, share with us some of the ways that you're dealing with these increasing costs, and how do you sustain high profits? Sure. That's a great question, Nick. And we're weighing several different data points against each other to try and maximize profitability. So share with us some data points that, that you are watching closely. Sure. So the, the first side of the profitability equation, obviously, is your cost. And I think it's important to really understand your true costs and understand where all of the different cost drivers can come from, from your product at every point of the supply chain. So as far as the cost, so you're talking about the landed cost of a product. Yes, that's right. Okay. So as an aggregator who has multiple brands and also you are always in the market to acquire new brands, what is a good margin on the landed cost? What should be, if you're selling an item for $10, what should be the landed cost of an item for a healthy operation? Sure. I think it depends on the category. It depends on the type of product. It can vary from place to place. Um, but I think you generally want to be looking at something in ideally the, the 30 plus landed cost, 30% uh, margin range, um, because that gives you room to do advertising, to run promotions, to do coupons, to price down on deals and still be able to sell that product at a healthy margin. Okay. So that means somebody selling it for $10, they should be buying it for $3. Yes. Landed. Okay. So what, what about the price point? Because, you know, you, you can, if we stick to the same example, Let's say the item price is $10 and you're getting your 30% margin. Uh, by the time you pay Amazon commissions and everything else, you still have a few dollars left uh, mm -hmm. only, which doesn't even cover the advertising costs in terms of clicks. So what is a good price point for an item 
when you are for those listeners who are either planning or already selling uh, what should be their ideal i know this is also different from category to category uh, and high ticket items will have uh, different types of challenges but for you to be in the mainstream what would be a good price point sure so like you mentioned it can really vary from product to product and category to category there are certain categories where being one dollar more expensive than your competitors basically makes you irrelevant and there's other categories where there's a very wide range of pricing and you have a lot of room to play in and i think it's important to understand the segment you're operating in understand your competitors um, and also understand how sensitive your customers are to to pricing changes. There are certain things that you, I think, are general rules of thumb that we try and keep in mind um, based on consumer behavior, right? Like it's better if you're if you are targeting a price around twenty dollars, it's better to be at nineteen ninety nine than to be at twenty dollars and ten cents. Just the optics of being underneath that twenty dollar threshold, customers seem to respond well to that. Um, but it's also important to know that. If you drop from 1999 to 1899, is that going to unlock a huge value for your business by driving more customers to your product, or are you still selling the same number of products and now you're just selling them for a lower price? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about making it competitive as far as, or at least making it look competitive um, for uh, you know competing with uh, others. Uh, how about from profitability standpoint? what is a from aggregator standpoint when you are evaluating a seller a health of a seller account what is a good price point for you guys to say okay this is a good business it's uh, it's competing well at the same time it's leaving enough cash by the time you pay the expenses yeah i i think again it's so dependent on the category and the type of product uh and it's the price point is just one component of that, right? Like what you sell it for is important, but how much you have to pay to get it is just as important. Because if we're if we're evaluating a seller, for example, and we see that they're selling, they have really high volume and they have a really good rank in a category and they're at a competitive price point, and then we sort of dig into the numbers and we find out that they're basically selling at break-even or sometimes even a loss, then we have to make a decision. Is that a sustainable business model for us? Um, are they in growth mode and we want to sort of invest in growing the business and then we think we can recuperate that investment with higher profits down the road? Or do we think this is a fairly mature business, fairly mature category? And if this is the level of investment it takes at that cost to drive volume, then maybe it's not a category that we can win in and we're better off investing our time and energy somewhere else. I see. Okay. So I'm not hearing it a specific price point that you favor more than the others you looking at more of the the potential for growth and also the margin that you are achieving yeah i wouldn't say that there's one specific price point that we're looking for and saying if it's under 30 dollars, then it's a good candidate or if it's under 50 dollars, it's a good candidate there are some products in our portfolio that are close to 100 dollars, and there's other products in the portfolio that are under 10 dollars and uh, it really comes down to the customer value proposition, right? Like what are customers willing to pay for something like this? And can we give them a quality product at that price point that meets their expectations? If we can, we think we can win. And if we can't, then it's a hard place to win because someone else out there is going to be able to meet that demand. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, let's move on from the landed cost of an item. So what's the next thing that you're watching? 
Sure. So once you know the landed cost of the item, then you really want to make sure you understand both the sort of the FBA fees and the, and the storage fees that you're paying, whether that's at your own storage facility, if you have one, or if you're just shipping everything right into FBA, uh, make sure you understand not just how much it costs today, but how much it might cost in the future. Um, the, as we know, Amazon storage fees can fluctuate based on the time of the year. Um, they can accelerate pretty rapidly based on how long something has been at FBA. And so knowing not just how much it costs you to get it, to your in, into your ownership, how long, or how much is costing you to keep it until you're able to sell it? That's a really important cost driver as well, and one that um, I think if you don't have a really good read on, can lead to really rapid increases in cost and eat away at a lot of your profitability. Okay, so share with us some tips to keep your storage costs low. Sure. So I think the the best way to keep your storage costs low are to have a really good sense of forecasting, which I know is a hard thing to do well, and it's something that we're trying to get better at every single day. But the best way to not have too much of something is to order only as much as you need. And if you find yourself in a situation, and I think this may have happened to a lot of sellers after COVID, where there was a, a huge surge in demand for products online that maybe people took as a permanent shift in the market of this is now what people are going to buy online, that now we're seeing Customers have a willingness to go back to retail and shopping a brick and mortar. Maybe some of that demand was temporary. And so if you placed a huge order in 2020 or 2021 based on what happened during the, the COVID surge online, you may now be sitting on piles of inventory that you won't be able to sell for, for a long time. And so understanding what, how much you think you can sell, what the customer demand is going to be, looking at historical, seg, uh, historical search data looking at historical conversion data, understanding how the market is moving, that can help you understand uh, how much you think you're going to be able to sell. And then trying to, as best as you can, manage getting that inventory to Amazon uh, to, to sell to customers, but not sending so much inventory that if you can't sell it, that now you're sitting on a potentially very expensive inventory for a long time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this this is something that it's, it's always hard to really create projections that will be close enough to accurate so because uh, you never know uh, you never know what the demand is going to be you never know how the customers will react to your product uh, sometimes there are se usually several factors so you cannot know uh, so what i always recommend is keep an eye on what they call the ipi score you know inventory performance index and uh, if that starts to drop, I just say to my clients, just bring them back. You know, no, no need to keep so much inventory at Amazon. So, uh, do you? Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Is that something you do? So, typically, if we find ourselves in a situation where there's more inventory at Amazon than we think we can reasonably sell, then we have to make a decision on how do we how do we handle that. And there's two ways really to do it, which is either to to sell it or to have it, have Amazon remove it, either by sending it back to you or sending it somewhere else. Typically, we're more of the mind of trying to sell it because even if it means selling it for lower margins than you typically would. And the reason for that is, number one, is expensive to remove it from Amazon and you don't actually get any revenue from it. And number two is once you do sell it, 
you do get the benefit potentially of improved rank and improved conversions on your on your PDP that you can then kind of ride that wave a little bit longer once you need to raise prices back up. So I don't necessarily think it's it's the best strategy long term to slash your prices, bring them up, slash your prices, bring them up. But if you find yourself in a situation where you have a a short term need to move through overstock inventory, we found that maybe making a temporary price reduction to help move through that inventory. Not only will it help you avoid some of those storage fees, it can open up space to ship in more product if you have a better performing product in the same account. Um, you also may get some sort of secondary benefits on the PDP by selling more of them than you, than you typically would. Yeah. So that opens up a question uh, about discounting, right? So because Amazon has this habit of tracking your pricing. So if mm -hmm. you drop the price, today let's say you reduce it x percent and then you sell out the inventory and then you have a new batch in and you increase the price then you may end up losing the buy buck right because amazon will say you know this is this does not qualify for the buy buck so uh, share with us some best practices about adjusting your price uh, but carefully Sure. Carefully, I think is a key word there because we found we found many times that it can be very finicky. Um, we find if you're if you need to make a price increase uh, to slow down sales, or you have inventory coming in, or maybe you've discovered a discount was costing you more margin than you thought it was, uh, it's typically better to make incremental changes to price. So let's say you want to raise your price by a total of ten dollars. It's better to go in chunks of one or two dollars over the course of a day, or maybe it might take two or three days to actually get there. Then, if you just shoot right up the ten dollar price increase, that may cause you to lose the buy box. And then the problem when that happens is you don't know at which, at which point you lost the buy box. So if you move up in smaller increments, if you lose it anywhere in the middle, you know where you lost it, and then you can see what you need to do to try and get over that that hump of where you lose the buy box. But if you go right up to $10 and you lose it, then you have to keep going backwards and backwards and backwards until you find where you lost the buy box. The entire time you don't own the buy box and someone else is taking those sales. Yeah. Yeah, I mean this is this is an issue because it's not instant. In other words, you can't just put the price up to uh, say $10 more and then you lose the buy box says, "Oh, okay, I drop it back say $3 and then hit refresh and then suddenly you you get the buy box it's never like that right so yeah. so you have to really give it time and this experiment can take uh, quite a bit of time for you to figure out exactly where your price should be so uh, so i guess the 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 lesson to take here is carefully plan your inventory do not rely on being able to discount heavily uh, just to get rid of it uh, so that you can put the price up once you sell out. Those things will take time and then you're going to have to do them incrementally. So even when you're dropping the price, maybe it's a good idea to drop incrementally rather than one big. Uh, I'm a big fan of offering quantity discounts by mm -hmm. using promotion codes. So do you, uh, do you use that? And can you share with us some things that you've had success with? Sure. So we do use some quantity discounts. We also use promo codes. Um, we typically will use promo codes more frequently with affiliate partners than for sort of standalone 
promotes because that's the way that our affiliate partners generally like to operate. It's a way for them to more easily promote a deal to their subscribers or their followers and we can track the results more easily. Um, but promo codes are definitely something that we've used to drive sales when we want to try and boost volume on a product. And are there some promotions that are more successful than others, like 10% off, 15% off, 25% off, or three pieces, buy three pieces, or whatever? Sure. So we've seen one interesting insight that we had found is if running a coupon generally is better than not running a coupon in terms of conversion rates, because you get coupon badging, people like to see that they can save, even if it's a small amount of money, the optics of saving, it seems that that performs well for customers. Um, the magnitude of the coupon, I think, is important in the sense that if you can afford to run a really aggressive coupon, people are going to see 20% off, 40% off, 50% off, and they'll be really excited about that. But there's not a huge difference from the data that we've seen between, say, a 5% and a 10% coupon. And so in that sense, coming back to the original question of how do we maximize profitability, if running a coupon is better than not running a coupon, but 5% and 10% roughly do the same thing, then we're going to usually lean towards a 5% coupon because otherwise we're giving away more margin without necessarily driving incremental sales. And so it, the, the important insight there was that doing nothing was worse because we don't get the badging. But if you're going to do something, if you can't go like a really aggressive coupon, sometimes just a 5% off coupon is enough to catch someone's attention because there's sort of the shiny object of the badging um, on the search engine results page or on the PDP, just something to catch someone's eye. Mm -hmm. So this this brings me to another question that uh, often is something that I'm asked. You have promotions and you have coupons. It's two different things, right? So yeah. give us your take on on each one. What what do you think and some of the benefits and pros and cons of each? Sure. So start with promotions. So the, the two big kinds of promotions are the seven-day deals and the lightning deals. Um, seven-day deals, I think, are much more powerful than lightning deals in the sense that if you can get one that runs at a time that makes sense for your business or for your product, it can be really powerful and it can drive a huge spike in, in a, not just a spike in sales during the deal, but a more sustained uh, sort of halo effect after the deal is done. Um, the challenge with 70 deals is that they're a lot less frequent. And if you rely on them as the only type of promotion for your business, then you, you're sometimes sitting for a month just waiting for it to come back and sometimes more. We've seen situations where Amazon is dictating a deal price that's far lower than anything we'd want to run. And we have to choose, do we run the deal and sell it at a really low price or do we pass up on the deal but now we maybe have to wait several weeks, if not a month, to be able to run another deal. So that's that's the trade-off with seventy deals. I think they're the most powerful deal, but they're also sort of the hardest to—they're the hardest to get right, and you're at the biggest mercy of Amazon to run it the way that they want you to. Um, lightning deals, I think, can be effective as well. Um, the challenge with lightning deals is it's a shorter time period, and so you have a much shorter window to drive the impact the lightning deal could generate. And given the fact that you have to pay a fee to run the deal, whether it's one ASIN on your PDP or if you have 100 ASINs on your PDP, um, one thing that we're looking at is trying to understand what do we think the incremental volume is going to be over a 12-hour period for this product from a Lightning deal? And is that 
it, not just the incremental volume, but at a lower price? And do we think that the combination of more units at a lower price on top of the deal fee is going to result in more contribution margin dollars for the business than if we didn't run the deal at all? So you, you, you went in a, uh, a very different direction than I had in mind, which is very useful. I want to dig more into this. Uh, but uh, the, let's cover first what I had in mind. And then I want to really dissect this lightning deals and, and, the, and the other promotions. What I was talking about was when you go to your advertising menu, uh, you have two options. One option is promotions. And the other option is coupons. And with promotions, you can create percent off or buy one, get one free, uh, that kind of promotions that I was talking about. Sure. So sure. there you can issue coupon codes mm -hmm. that are specific to whatever the, the conditions that you may apply. You may offer these promotions for your entire catalog. You may offer it for a select group of items. Uh, you may... Uh, require a coupon code or you may make it publicly displayed on on the product detail page so there's different ways to create promotions and they are free in other words you just create the coupon or a promotion code and then offer the discount that's it and then there are also coupons coupons are there is a checkbox on right above the 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 title uh, click to apply coupon and and then that coupon gets applied so that's a whole different way to set up and offer and things like that so sure. that's what i had in mind so can you share with us some of your experiences and what you find as something that works the best yeah great question thank you for clarifying what you were looking for there so i think from our perspective there's the, like I mentioned before, promotions we typically are going to see used more often with affiliate partners when we want someone to drive traffic to the site um, and use a deal. Specifically, if we want to have an exclusive partner, an exclusive deal with a partner, we have some affiliate partners that will say, hey, we have a, a huge newsletter, a huge subscriber list. We'll promote your product to our subscriber list, but we want a coupon that they can only find here and nowhere else. And if that's the case, then having the coupon, the checkbox one you described on the PDP, isn't going to work because the, the, the affiliate partner wants to make sure that that's a deal that only their subscribers have access to. And so that's where we'll find a promotion code, um, whether it's a social media code, is most frequently, that's where we'll find that is going to be used more often. Um, I think we generally lean towards coupons rather than promotions in other circumstances because of the badging and because of the improved visibility on both the search page and on the PDP. Um, a lot of the time, there isn't, it's not as easy to tell if there's a, a, a promo code available for a product. Sometimes it's not even on the page at all. And so our thinking is if we want to run a coupon or a promo code, we want to, we want to have a discount on the product. It's because we want to sell more of it for one reason or another. And we want that to be visible to the customer so that there's fewer barriers for them to actually buy the product. And so unless it's something like affiliate where we have a compelling reason for it to not be available to everyone, we're usually going to lean towards coupons where it's now available and visible to everyone and hopefully fewer barriers to them actually making a purchase. Yeah. 
yeah uh, so this is this is a big difference between promotions and coupons and there are ways to my, my experience working with different clients and when i was a seller myself we used to, we, we just discovered it accidentally uh, but we would use the at the beginning a while ago there was only promotions they didn't have these coupons that you could check the box so what we would create was a coupon code that you can select to be publicly uh, displayed on the product detail page uh, or hidden and in your case if you're using affiliates then you would select it to be hidden so that way you just hand it out you know so it becomes specific to whatever it's intended for. Uh, so uh, what we discovered was we would create promotion codes to be publicly displayed. So it would say save 25% with coupon code, you know, use blah, blah on checkout. So people would buy, but forget to use the coupon code. <laughs> So a lot of, because it's it's massive, right? So millions are buying every day. So there is always a group of people who just are very quick, you know, happy on the trigger. So they just check out and, what, and, and especially with Amazon making it easy with one click checkout. So they forget to enter the coupon code. So they buy it because there is a message there that says enter blah, blah. And then they never use the coupon code. So that's something that we discovered that um for what for what it's worth you know so it, it it's handy to have so uh let's go back to the deals that you were talking about so um lightning deals so lightning deals come around uh, it's promoted by amazon and it's shown throughout the site so how do you get into the lightning deal in the first place and share with us some of the information there and also you mentioned there are fees associated what are those fees yeah. So if you are in Seller Central and you navigate to the the deals section, you can click to create a new deal and you type in the ASIN that you want to run a deal on. And it will tell you if you have a lightning deal or a seven-day deal, even eligible to schedule. There are certain criteria that Amazon uses to determine if something's eligible in the first place. It's based on sales velocity and inventory. It's a lot, like many things on Amazon, it's a little bit black box exactly how you qualify. But um, there's review count and rating count is another component as well. But generally, if you have a product that is decently healthy on Amazon and moves a, a decent number of units, then you should be able to get a lightning deal. Um, once you decide you want to run a lightning deal, then you just you schedule the week that you want it to run during. And then that's the best that you can do. And from that point, Amazon will automatically assign to you a 12-hour period. At some point from the Monday at midnight to Sunday at 11.59 p.m., that you'll get a time range. So you'll get a 12 hour window somewhere in that time range and you don't really get to pick when it happens. Sometimes you get lucky and it's at a really high volume shopping time of day. Other times you get unlucky and it's in the middle of the night and it's during the middle of the week and not many people shop. So you're a little bit at Amazon's mercy there, um, but you sort of, you schedule it and you hope that you get a good, a good time slot and then you evaluate from there. And you mentioned the fees associated yes. with Lightning Deals. Yep. So there's a, a fee of, in the US, at least $150 um, to run a Lightning Deal. And that fee is incurred the minute that the deal starts. So if you start the deal 
and then five minutes later you decide, you know what, I actually don't want to run this deal, $150 gone. So that's why it's important to understand if you want to run the deal, making that determination before the deal starts, because that's that's a one-way train once you pay that fee. Okay. So now the magic question is, how do you project how many can sell in that lightning deal? Sure. So rather than necessarily trying to figure out how many we're going to sell, what we try and figure out is how many would we need to sell to be better off than if we did nothing. And so combining the, the discount with the typical volume of that product and then we, sorry, the typical volume of the typical selling price, we now know our new selling price, how many more units would we need to sell of this product to plus the $150 deal fee that we pay no matter what to be able to now be at a, essentially a break-even point from a cash generation standpoint. And mm-hmm. then it's a judgment call and it comes down to understanding your brand and your product. There could be a product where we say, we need to sell 10 more than typical, and that's never going to happen. And there could be a product where we say we need to sell 200 more than typical, and that's a walk in the park. We do that all the time. And that's where it comes down to understanding your product and your category. Um, even things like what's happening in the, in the market. If you have a competitor that you know has an out-of-stock issue, then maybe the, that 100-unit lift would normally be unattainable, but you think you can get it because this week you have a competitor who's out of stock. And so that's why it's important to know your brand, but also what's happening in the marketplace as well. And then once we have a sense of how many units we think we need to move to make the deal make sense, then we make a judgment call. Yes, we think we can do that. No, we don't think we can do that. Um, And then once you've run a few lightning deals, you also have the luxury of looking back historically, and you can see for previous deals, how many units you sold on the deal. And so if you have a hard time, if you're having a hard time trying to guess how many units do I think I can sell, um, if I run a lightning deal, you can go back and look over time. You can look if a, a deal at a certain day of the week or a certain t- time of day, or even if you have a year's worth of data, you can look at how something performed last year at the same, the same time of year. And then you can use that data to try and inform whether or not you think what your target is, is actually attainable. Mm-hmm. And, and you said that you, you don't get to choose when the deal is going to run. You just are given the options for that 12 hour window, right? So you you sign up for a week, like you say. I, I want to, you know, today is January third. So you could say, I want to run a deal sometime between January tenth and January sixteenth, and you submit, and then you'll find out. It, typically, it's a little farther than that. So today is January third. So okay, uh, I'm going to sign up for a deal to run some sometime between uh, January sixteenth and January twenty second, the Monday to to Sunday, and. Amazon at some point, like the the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, 15th, somewhere in that time range, will then tell you, okay, you have a deal scheduled for the week of the 16th, and it's going to run on Thursday starting at 9 a.m. Pacific time. And then you make the decision at that point whether or not you want to run the deal. But you typically don't know. You can pick the week you want to run it, but you don't get to pick the time that the deal runs. Okay. And... Is there a cap on the quantity that you want to make available, or uh, do you? What happens if you run out? Sure. So make- that that's there's two components of this as well. I think the first is how many asins you want to make available if you have a PDP with multiple asins. So let's say you have something with multiple sizes or multiple colors or multiple configurations. The typical rule of thumb that Amazon enforces is that you want to have around two thirds of your variations on a PDP included in the deal or else it may not run. 
And the reason for that is if you have a PDP where you have, let's say you have extra small, small, medium, large, extra large, and you only want to run the deal on the extra large, Amazon may not let that fly. They, you, they may want you to include at least three and probably four of those different sizes, be it for the deal to run. So you could maybe exclude one that is really understocked or one where the deal price is a lot lower and your margins are poor. Um, but you, this is not a type of deal that you can run, unlike, say, a coupon or a promo code that you can just pick the specific ASINs you want it to work on. Amazon tries to have this work at the PDP level whenever they can. Um, mm -hmm. And in terms of quantity available, um, when you run a Lightning deal, if you ever go to a PDP of a deal that's actively running, you can see that there's badging that there's not only a Lightning deal running, but it will say the percentage that have been claimed. This is something that you see a lot you know, during Black Friday. They'll have like the little bar across the bottom that says the percentage claimed, and that's to create a sense of urgency around, um, you, know, you better buy this now or else this might not be here much longer. Um, and what's interesting is you can actually change the committed quantity. You can increase it throughout the deal. And so if you find, if you set your quantity to be 50 and four hours into the deal, you sold 48 units, rather than have that deal shut off at 50, which is what would happen if you did nothing, you can raise it up to 100. And now your percentage claimed will go from 95% down to 48%. The bar will shrink back down. And now you have created more room for the customer to, to shop that deal. And so there's, it's hard to say for sure what the ideal percentage claimed is. And I don't think it's necessarily the best use of time to spend your entire 12-hour lightning deal refreshing your page every 10 seconds and constantly increasing the quantity by one to hit the right percentage claimed. Um, yeah. But it definitely, like, being at 1% claimed, I think, can be a deterrent. Like, customers go there and say, oh, this isn't a deal that people care about. Um, and also, if you get to 100% claimed, then the deal's over because that exists not only to create demand for the customer, but also to protect you as the seller. That let's say you've got a thousand units that you want to sell and you're saying, you know what, I'm willing to sell a hundred of these at this price, but I don't want to sell all a thousand at this price. That's where you can use a committed quantity to say, I'm only willing to run the deal on this percentage of my inventory. And that's to protect you and your profitability as well. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is a potential best practice is start with a low number of pieces to commit so that you can get that high percentage <laughs> claimed and then keep an eye on it throughout the deal and then increase the quantity if you find that more and more people are claiming. Would that be a good idea? Yeah, that's generally a best practice. And oftentimes Amazon will dictate a minimum committed quantity as well. And I so that, that's one thing to always monitor when you not only when you set up a deal, but before the deal runs, it's usually a good practice to go into the deal and make sure that there's no errors that need to be resolved because Amazon has a tendency to change things when you're not looking. And then you a deal that looked good yesterday, you log in today, and all of a sudden the committed quantity minimum has increased by 10 and you have an error. Or the, the minimum deal price has gone down by 25 cents and you have an error. And if a lot of the times, if you have an error, Amazon will keep running the deal but they'll take away the badging. And now you have the worst of both worlds because you're just selling at a lower price and no one knows that it's a deal and you don't get any of the badging and any of the boosting from it. So um, it's important to make sure not only that the deal makes sense when you set it up, but that none of the variables in the deal change in between the initial setup and when the deal launches because that can not only complicate the economics of the deal, but also can take away some of the benefits of the deal.
Yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning, you have to qualify for these. This is not for everyone, right? So you need to have certain performance on the ASINs that you want to include in the deal. Yes. And what uh, do you know? I mean, you mentioned that it's a black box. You never know how you, but based on experience, you, you develop certain ideas about what it would take to qualify for these deals. What what are the typical expectations there? So I think, like like you mentioned, I I don't know if anyone knows for sure, and we don't know for sure exactly how to qualify, or, or which products are going to qualify and which ones aren't going to. Um, but generally speaking, you want to have a product that moves, or sorry, a PDP rather that moves a decent amount of volume, so not something that sells three or four units a week. That's probably not going to qualify. Um, and you want to have something that has a good a good star rating. So I, it's I don't know where what the cutoff is necessarily, but if you have a PDP that has a two star rating, that may not qualify for a lending deal, even if you sell a lot of units or you have historically sold a lot of units. Um, and I and the other components obviously are you need to have inventory and stock, and you need to um, yeah you need to have inventory and stock because if there's nothing to sell, then Amazon won't let you run a deal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to have a good rating. You need to have enough sell-through rate on daily basis, and and you need to have enough inventory, and then it will qualify. So, exactly. is there is there ever an occasion where you qualify today, and then you set up the deal, and then suddenly you no longer qualify? It's not no longer available. Uh, I can't I can't say for certain it's never happened. I can't recall a scenario where we've scheduled a deal that has then disappeared. What has happened is that a product that was eligible to schedule a deal in two weeks, if you want to schedule another deal the week afterwards, is not an option to schedule that follow-up lightning deal. Um, oh. And so this is, again, where like a recurring theme here that sometimes Amazon just makes their own decisions and you have to live with the consequences. And so um, this is where it can be complicated to, to necessarily plan out lightning deals for the entire year. Um, they may not be available for every week that you want to schedule them. So what I'm hearing is it's best to keep an eye and then whenever you qualify, grab it as long as you have inventory and that you're looking to sell you know, a large quantity and then don't think that that's going to come around frequently. Exactly. And like you mentioned, if you have the ability to schedule one, I typically, I think it's easier to cancel something on Amazon than to schedule something on Amazon because like we talked about, the scheduling isn't always there. And so if you have the ability to schedule it, set it up and then make the determination before it starts if you want to keep it or if you want to cancel it. Um, but if you choose not to set it up because you're not sure about the economics, if you then decide you do want to run it, oftentimes the opportunity is no longer available. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is this is valuable because all these different activities are bringing you sales. Now, you, we covered the discounts. Obviously, these discounts that you are offering, whether it's lightning deal or promotion or coupon code, whatever, uh, they are taking away from your margin. So that goes back to the numbers. So uh, we know what the FBA fee is. Uh, we know what Amazon commission is. So what is a good margin for you? So going right back to where we started, you know, in today's climate, uh, 
the data points that you're looking at. So what are you shooting for in order to have sustainable profits as the net net bottom line on 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 a sale? Sure. So once factoring in the FBA fees, the landed cost, the Amazon commission, as well as our advertising expense, um, we typically like to stay above 20% contribution margin. Um, ideally higher than that, but that's sort of, if we get below 20%, that's where we start to get nervous that um, like maybe something isn't, uh, isn't right here. Um, and the reason for that is that is the engine that allows us to invest more in advertising that allows us to invest more in new product development and new product launch. It allows us to hire great people who work here. Um, that's the money that sort of funds the growth of the business rather than just buying new inventory and and paying sort of your, your typical Amazon fees. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good number to work backwards from. And so if we are shooting for 20%, so that gives you 80% to spend. So 30% goes to the product, purchasing the product, landed cost. So that leaves you with 50%. Out of that 50%, 15% goes to Amazon. So you're left with 15, 35%. And depending on your price point and how big the item is, how heavy the item is, I usually would like to allocate between 12 to 15% for the FBA fee. So... You, that means that FBA fee, let's, let's assume 15% also for FBA. That leaves you with 20%. That is on really left for spending on advertising. Does that kind of uh, tell you that, that, that you're, what you are, what your metrics usually tend to be? And it, it really varies so much from product to product and category to category. There are some products that are the landed cost relative to our typical selling price is allows us to spend a lot more on advertising. There's other products that arrive with very little margin to play with, but can sell very well without a ton of advertising. And so it's, it's hard to say there's like a one template of like, this is the exact breakdown of the cost of goods versus Amazon fees and FBA and advertising. Um, but it, like you said, I think the way you broke it down is it generally in line with how things would shake out for our business. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's, there are so many variables. Uh, like for example, if you're selling clothing items, then the clothing items tend to be much, much lighter. Uh, they're not heavy to ship. Uh, so therefore they are cheaper in FBA. Plus if the cost is around $50, then your FBA fee may be 8%. So now you've got more to spend on advertising. So what, what I always what I always tell my clients to watch constantly is watch your cost of goods, you know, landed cost, what is percentage of your uh, top line, and then watch your FBA fees as percentage of top line, and then watch your advertising as percentage of top line. So, of course, top line is the discounted top line with any promotions or anything else. So, so that way you have a pretty good idea of, of each bucket where the money is going. And then make sure that once you take away all that, you're left with 20%. <laughs>
Yeah. And I think it's important. Those, those metrics that you identified are important. And it's also really important to not just know what they are, but what they were in the past as well, because it's one, it's one thing to know, okay, today my FBA fees represent 20% of my top line. But if last year it was 6% and now it's 20%, then you want to figure out what's happening that's causing your FBA fees to basically triple relative to the, the cost of the product. And so then it becomes a question of did the size of the packaging change? Did it get heavier? Was there just a change in Amazon's policy? And if that's the case, do you need to price up to preserve some of that margin? Yeah. Yeah. So the, there is there's so many things that happen. Amazon also reclassifies the packaging. So, and, and in fact, it may be incorrect. So it's a good idea to always check what it is that you are paying versus what you thought you were going to pay at the beginning, which may have been the case at the beginning, but then they often change. So uh, always a good idea to stay on top of these things. And you, you hit the nail on the head. As far as numbers, you know, I'm big into data. It's always data in perspective you don't want to be just looking at okay what what is what is our profit today or what is our margin today it's always in perspective look at it over a period of time look at it last year this time last week last month so it's always looking at those uh, numbers in perspective will give you a much better idea so that you can investigate and see what happened anything good happened um, since we are talking numbers, before we wrap up, I have to mention some of the other performance metrics, like, for example, conversion rates. Uh, so uh, tell us uh, how you use those. And first of all, define what the conversion rate is, because, you know, Amazon changed their definitions recently. <laughs> sure. So, so so I think the way that the way that I think about conversion rate is thinking about the the percentage of people who are on your page, either who are on your page that end up shopping or the people who add to cart who end up converting. I think it, different people will use different metrics for it. I think what's important from a conversion rate standpoint that we look at is two metrics in two areas. The first is in terms of advertising and wanting to try and make sure our advertising is driving a healthy conversion rate and funding with advertising campaigns that have strong conversion rates rather than ones that have poor conversion rates. Um, And the other component of that is looking at the conversion rate throughout the entire shopping funnel. And so thinking not just do people who add this product to their cart buy it, but going all the way back to the top of the funnel and thinking do people who search for this really important term that to our business buy our product. And if they search for it and they come to our page, do they add it to the cart and then do they buy it? Or do they come to our page and leave? Or do they come to our page and add to cart and then forget to shop? You know, Understanding where that breakdown in the, in the shopping journey happens can help you pinpoint where you may need to change something about your page or your product to better align what you're selling with what customers are looking for. So the, those specifics that you mentioned, until recently, they were not available to track, right? Correct. <laughs> so share with us where people can get that information. Sure. So there is a newly available report in, um, in Seller Central called the Search Query Performance Report. And that's an area that we are just starting to sort of explore how we use. 
And what it basically does is it shows you your performance relative to your competitors at each stage of the shopping funnel on specific keywords. So you can see keyword by keyword and stage by stage in the shopping funnel, how you're performing relative to the competition, or basically what your share of the action is. So you can see if they're just for round numbers, if there's 100 people who search for this term, how many of those 100 people click on your product versus click on another competitor's product or click on other people's product. And then of the people who clicked on a t- on any product, how many of them added it to cart for yours versus how many people added another, another competitor's product to the cart. And it's a little bit of a, a limited report at this time. It doesn't give as wide of a net as we'd hope it to. Um, but it's like you mentioned, it's data that used to not be available at all. And so we're happy that we have something now because before we had nothing. And we're just trying to figure out what's the best and most actionable way to use this new information for us. Yeah. So are those in the search query performance, is that those, because, you know, there, there is like a number of columns and then they break it down into stages, the search number of impressions and then number of clicks uh, for each keyword. Does that uh, include the sponsored clicks as well as organic clicks or is that data only for organic? Our understanding is that it's only organic, but to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, one, if there's anyone from Amazon listening, I think one thing that would be great for that report is to make it a little bit more user-friendly. It's a bit of a, a Herculean effort by our uh, our analytics and advertising team to even make the report readable to the average person. So um, the data is available, which is great, but it's not always clear uh, exactly where it comes from and exactly how to format it to be most actionable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We started working on those reports recently, yeah. and and it's it's uh, it's it's like one of those questions that they give you in in these exams, you know, that you have to figure out. <laughs> it's been complex, uh, but uh, what we are doing is we're trying to get the data from the API and then check against what we see on the on Seller Central, and they never. They never match. It's never the yeah. same. Yeah, so, I think that's that's a, a, a good observation. And I think it's something that's a good rule of thumb for, for a lot of what we do is, like you mentioned, sometimes you look at something that should be the same in multiple places and it's never the same. And never. the question is, am I going to spend the next seven hours figuring out why they're different or which one is the right one? Or can I use the information here directionally to make a decision about how to run the business. And if they're close and they tell the same story, then we try and say, okay, what's the story that it's telling us? Like, for example, on the search query performance, if the story is that when someone searches for this key search term, a lot of people click on our page, but no one adds it to cart, then there's a problem on the PDP. I don't know what the problem necessarily is. Is it the title? Is it the images? Is it the price? Is it we don't have a coupon? Is it the the A plus, is it the, the the bullets? I don't know what the problem is, but it's somewhere there. And whether I think that I have 12% click share or 8% click share or 15% click share, the problem is the same. And it's important to understand where you think the issue is and then focus your efforts on solving the problem rather than saying, okay, which one of these three numbers is the actual right number? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, this is before the, the search query performance report came uh, came along. I was working with the business reports and and watching 
the data points on business reports exclusively uh, to get a picture of what's going on as a whole. Uh, advertising is obviously is, is one thing, uh, but at the end of the day, if you are bringing 1,000 people to your page and then you've got 100 people buying it, your conversion is 10%. And whether your advertising is converting at X and your organic, it doesn't matter. Your conversion is 10%. So you just focus on how do you make that conversion 15%, 18%, 20%. That means you don't have to spend any more money in advertising. All you have to do is just work on the PDP and make sure that you're converting much better and, and figure out ways and not change like too many things to figure out what's going to convert better. Just one thing at a time and then keep checking. And then, you know, once your conversion goes up, then you know something is working, right? So uh, people can get lost in data, but at the end of the day, it's what you do with it and how you do it is, is the key. Absolutely. So this is great. Uh, so Matt, you shared a lot of very valuable information. So you really set people up for success in terms of what margins to watch and how to drive promotions and then deals and lightning deals. So uh, this is great uh, conversation. So let's learn a little bit about you. So tell us, uh, other than supporting all the bad New York teams. <laughs> so share with us uh, first, uh, where did you grow up? Give us your background. Sure. So I grew up in Connecticut and I grew up on the New York side of Connecticut, which is how I got all the New York bad sports teams rather than the Boston sports teams, which is where I live now. Um, I grew up in Connecticut. I went to college at the University of Richmond in Virginia, which is where I met my now wife. And she was from Boston, already had a job lined up here. And so I followed her back to Boston after college. And we're still here now, uh, nine years later. Wow. So you become not so much of a Bostonian, but really uh, somewhat of an in-between, right? Exactly, yeah. So uh, what was it that pushed you into, because at the beginning when I introduced you, you were in specialty retail. So uh, was that always your interest or growing up as a kid? Were you doing anything in retail? Sure, that's a great question. So what I had always been doing professionally um, after college was working in the marketing space. So I worked in marketing consulting out of college. Then I worked for a specialty sporting goods retail company in a variety of marketing functions. And what I really loved about working, especially at the last um, company, at the, the hockey company, was how sort of narrow focused the business was. Like we sold hockey equipment. And it didn't matter if we were selling a pair of hockey skates at 99% off. If you're not a hockey player, it didn't matter. And so we had to be really good at finding the people who cared about our product and then win those customers. And I think that that's true no matter what business you're in. Even if you are selling on Amazon, which is a, a huge mass merchandiser, whatever your product is, is a really narrow focus for, for a certain type of customer. Someone's looking for that thing. And you have to make sure that you can provide that customer the value that they're looking for when they're searching for it. And that's what I have really enjoyed about working in the Amazon space now for almost two years is even though it feels like such a huge website and such a huge business, in reality, it's just millions of tiny, micro, narrow transactions every day. Mm -hmm. So where do you think that narrow, your interest in focusing on 
things specifically, where do you think that came from? Sure. So I, I always grew up a big sports fan and um, I wanted to work in a business that I felt I could be passionate about. And whether it was at the hockey company or here at Perch, what I love is being able to sell the things that people can use and can hold. I think a lot of the things that we use now in today's day and age is a lot of software. It's streaming video. It's virtual everything, which is great. And it's unlocked a, a ton of capabilities for a lot of people and a lot of businesses. But there's still a lot of value, I think, in like having something that you can hold in your hands and you can feel it and you can use it. And the, the value that that can create for customers and provide for customers. And, you know, just reading, sometimes you like read through the reviews of products that you sell on, on your page and people have like really, really nice things to say about them. And people have uses for products that you never thought of. And people, a, a product was able to help them solve a problem that had been troubling them for a long time. And being able to, to be a part of solving that problem for a customer, I think is really powerful. So I, I, you know, I'm sure you, you watch Shark Tank, right? So I we do. all watch Shark Tank. So a lot of people come out with a real passion for the products that they created. So that seems to be all coming from something that they care about or they grew up caring about. Is, is that, is that is your experience as a kid growing up, uh, products making an impact in how you how you live your life or how you enjoy things? Sure. I, I think it was, for me as a kid, it was less about like maybe like a love of products and more about, a, you know, a love of sports and what sports, like, you know, what it provides for kids and not just the the fun, but, you know, the values of teamwork and working together and, you know, pushing towards a goal. I think that's really important. And I think the other thing that's important too, like you mentioned on Shark Tank, the passion that the entrepreneurs have, usually it's because they have experienced some problem themselves that they want to fix. And it's really hard to be passionate about something, I think, if you don't live it in some respect. So for example, when I started working at Pure Hockey, I had always been a hockey fan, but I had never put on a pair of skates in my life. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to try and sell these to customers, I have to know what I'm talking about. I'm going to, they're going to see right through me. I'm going to sound very inauthentic. I'm not going to be able to speak the language because it's a very, anyone who is a hockey player in that community knows it's a very specific language around hockey. And so I went from not knowing how to play hockey to just being the worst player in the office, which was progress for me because I didn't even know how to skate before. And it made me able to better empathize with our customers because I knew what it was like to be up at six o'clock in the morning going to to skate and realizing that you're missing tape for your stick or that your blades aren't sharpened. Then you need to do something to, uh, you know, there's something missing in your game and you need a quick fix for it. And there's, you know, at Perch, we sell so many different types of products that it's not to say that I'm passionate about every single one of the things that we've ever sold, but I think it, it's still important to have a passion for whatever it is that your business does, whatever the products that you make are, whatever the problems you solve for customers are. I think it makes it a lot easier to not just do your job well, but to really put yourself in the shoes of a customer if it's something that you are passionate about and something that you live yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always the same. Uh, you really need to love what you're doing and then have passion for it. Then everything becomes much easier because business itself is already a lot of hardship. 
uh, and uh, in the, in your case working on amazon you have to combine passion with numbers which yep. uh, you know we covered uh, in great length so this was great matt so um, tell us how can people reach you share with us your contact information Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Matt Rosenthal, M-A-T-T-R-O-S-E-N-T-H-A-L. And you can also feel free to email me, matt.rosenthal at perchhq.com. Great. Uh, This was great. Thank you for being here. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me, Nick, and Happy New Year. And, uh, And this brings us to the end of another episode, and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.